0: A man without ethics is a wild beast loosed upon this world. Welcome to Wild Beasts, a podcast about ethics. Why are AI ethicists arguing about ChatGPT? And what is societal informed consent? I'm Courtney Davis. In this episode, Brian Green, Director of Technology Ethics at the Markula Center, discusses ethics and the new forms of generative AI.
1: Hello, Courtney. How are you?
0: Good. How are you?
1: I'm doing all right.
0: Well, thank you for agreeing to have this conversation. Sure. I wanted to start by going back to a conversation we had a couple of weeks ago at the Marcus Center about the Future of Life Institute letter. Right. I just, i'm I'm wondering what the letter was. It's obviously made news, a lot of news, because it had signatories of significant status, Elon Musk and other folks, but... What was the letter? I was unaware at the time that you'd been asked to sign it. Sure.
1: The idea behind the letter was to slow down AI research on very large language models. So specifically putting a six month moratorium on large language model development. And in that way, it was very specific. It was not a blanket ban on AI research. It was not, uh, it was not limiting in a lot of ways. It was very specifically targeted and very much for a six-month period. And the general idea would be that by slowing down this research, hopefully society would have a chance to catch up and have some conversations on what would be the right ways to develop this technology, hopefully develop the technology more safely, and uh, ultimately yield models, large language models, that are going to be more helpful and hopefully less dangerous.
0: And the Institute reached out and asked you to sign it because it was a petition, correct?
1: Right. I think they have something like 10,000 signatories now.
0: And why didn't you sign it?
1: So I didn't sign it, first of all, because I was in Hong Kong and I was concentrating on some other things. So I was distracted. But when I did get a chance to read it, I was kind of struck by the fact that it seemed a little bit, it was both too specific in some ways and too vague in other ways. Um, it was too specific in that it was limited to large language models. I think there was a reason for that. It's because ChatGPT and GPT-4 have come out recently, and also too vague in that it didn't talk about how to do this implementation, how to actually have the conversations or do the work that needed to be done to make the the large language models safer, ultimately. So I, I th- thought it was just a little a little off target and also maybe a little bit unrealistic in some ways, because there's a lot of money behind these things right now. And sometimes being idealistic is good, but sometimes being idealistic is more of a distraction. I don't think they intended it to be that way. I just, uh, it struck me as being that way.
0: And so you said it was limited in scope in that it only mentioned large language models. If it were properly scoped, what else would it include?
1: So I think generative art models have become really important. I think there's a lot of development going on with making video generating models. Those are uh, important. There's also kind of reasoning models and, and other sorts of problem solving models that are interesting. They're not as highly developed as large language models. Also models that are focused on generating programming. So in other words, generating code that the AI could then use to feed back on itself to develop itself. So these kinds of evolutionary AI models are something that could become pretty dangerous if the AI starts to develop itself in a way that humans are not paying attention to or can't understand or those sorts of things. So I think there are some other uh, important topics that need to be included here.
0: Right. And so it just seems like the primary criticism is that it wasn't flushed out completely.
1: It was partly that. I mean, also the the kind of the unrealistic nature of it. The letter's important because I think it raised this to public consciousness as to how efficacious it's actually going to be, or could have been, if it had. You know, if I had added my name to it, I don't think adding my name to it would have significantly changed the output or the outcome of what's happened based on you know just one name that's been added to it. Oh, well, the lack of specifics about how to actually implement a solution or what to do during the six month pause, that is something that could be certainly fleshed out more in order to, to make it more clear what we actually need to do. We need to have these social discussions. We need to have some sort of conversation with government and corporations. And it really needs to be international also. That's the other thing is that although this did make international news, so I heard about it when I was in Hong Kong and everyone in there. At the conference I was at, I had heard about it. There's also the question of how are we going to have, have an international conversation on this topic?
0: Right. Because everyone's racing to develop their own version of this model. Exactly. My other question uh, just about the letter was about how the letter, maybe in the way that it was written, divided ethicists, AI ethicists who are supposed to share the same goals divided them and pitted them against each other and the way i understood those two camps and how they were organized were people who view ai as an immediate threat um, or maybe the the risks of ai are framed in terms of more immediate threats to society risks and then there's this other long-term camp i'm wondering if you can explain what happened there and why those two camps differ
1: sure so this is something which I think is a very unfortunate split that's happened in the AI ethics community right now. There are some people who are working very much on problems that we have right now, problems in terms of bias, problems in terms of worker exploitation, if they are you know, constructing databases or giving human feedback on on AI models. So for example, ChatGPT GPT uh, required, I don't even know how many thousands of hours of human feedback in order to make sure that it gave answers that people actually like. And that required workers who from who knows where in the world being treated under what conditions, we don't know what. These are all, it was important that the model was trained that way and that it uh, produced better output. But a lot of the times, times these workers are not treated very well at all. So there's problems with workers, there's problem with fairness, there's problems with facial recognition being used, problems with trying to use AI for police work, often in conjunction with facial recognition technology. And there are problems with false positives, of course, and, and all sorts of issues there. So there are these very very immediate problems with uh, AI that are happening right now. And then there are folks who have the longer term perspective And that they are very concerned about something like AI coming to some sort of consciousness or becoming defensive in order to protect itself from humans or being very misaligned, as they call it. They call it the AI alignment problem. How do we actually get the AI to do what we want? What if it uh, tries to do all these terrible things that we don't want it to do? So these are kind of longer term, bigger issues, and that these are things that could destroy the entire world. Uh, But they're also more vague, they're more long term, they're, they're farther out there. And so this split that's developed in the ethics community has very much been between the people saying we need to work on these topics right now. And other people saying no, we need to work on these longer term, even bigger problems. And The reason I don't like that split is because there are actually very strong linkages between the two things. For example, if we can't get AI to be de-biased right now, if we can't get it to be fair, that's a very important component of the AI alignment problem. The AI alignment problem tries to get AI to do what we want. Guess what? If it's biased, it doesn't do what we want. There's a direct connection between those problems. And just because somebody's working on immediate problems right now or longer term problems in the future doesn't mean that they have any sort of opposition to each other. Ultimately, they're working on the same problem. And hopefully, uh, they can figure out some way to collaborate rather than try to compete with each other. And it's a strange form of competition when you think about it, right? Because it's a competition for attention. And uh, ultimately, you know, we have a finite amount of attention that we can direct towards these problems, and both of them need more attention, and what they should be doing is hopefully trying to bring more people in to work on it, but instead they are, um, they're kind of competing with each other to try to get this limited number of ethicists that we already have working on either the shorter term or the longer term problems.
0: I think my instinct was the same as yours in thinking, I'm not totally sure how these two things fully come apart. It seems like they would be worried about the same kinds of issues. Like if I'm thinking about the misinformation and the hallucinations that we talk about and job displacement, things like that, all of these over time, or as like a function of time, become longer term issues. I'm wondering, just to tease this out further, how would you address the long term problems in isolation of the short-term or they're like explicitly long-term risks that these AI ethicists like set these aside, let's focus on this.
1: So I I think, first of all, I agree with you completely that uh, I all of these short-term problems turn into long-term problems if you ignore them. Right. (laughs) And all the long-term problems ultimately have their own kind of short-term version to them. I guess if you wanted to think of a long-term problem that maybe didn't have an immediate kind of short-term, uh, connection. Maybe it would be the AI consciousness problem. But there really are, there are people who have dedicated themselves and their research to trying to make consciousness and artificial consciousness type of things. How do you actually work on that sort of work? In which case, you know, we should be thinking about the ethics of it. We shouldn't be ignoring that. We shouldn't be just letting them do this research without any thought of the ethics of what does this mean in terms of obligations, if we manage to create some sort of artificial consciousness? uh, How will we know if it's actually an artificial consciousness? Um, How will it act? Can we make it act ethically, or is it going to act like Skynet from the Terminator movies? Uh, So there are certainly issues there to think about right now, uh, even if the problem is very theoretical and might not happen for forever, really, right? Because maybe it's not even theoretically possible.
0: Just to highlight one of the questions you asked, how would we know if it's artificially conscious is one of the interesting ones to me. I mean, we call it artificial intelligence now. I know plenty of folks in AI research that dislike strongly the term artificial intelligence because it implies that we have this coherent concept of intelligence. And then also it just elevates this thing to a level that it might not belong. And I I don't know, there's just a weird don't know how we would know if it was truly intelligent or how we would know if it was truly conscious.
1: So you're exactly right. I'll agree with you. First of all, I don't like the term artificial intelligence either. I think if we had to change it to something very similar, we could maybe call it automated intelligence. And that gives the idea that we're taking our own sort of intelligence and we're automating it because that really gets to the questions of scale and speed and other sorts of things. And it's really a human kind of intelligence that we're putting out there as for the question of how would we know i think that is a really really hard question that uh, especially because all of these models are being trained on human language they're being trained to act like humans we've seen this very much with the the chatbot that was associated with bing recently where it started trying to convince a person to to leave his wife and and you know be with bing and <laughs> and it had had come up with various names for itself and and those sorts of things and you think to yourself it's not actually conscious. It's not actually doing these things. It's just imitating what a human might do under those circumstances. And so this becomes a real problem because we're, we're very vulnerable as human beings to seeing another consciousness when there's not actually one there. And AI researchers and developers want to create the most human-like systems that they can. And so this is going to be a, a long-term issue In terms of how do we actually protect ourselves from being manipulated from something that's acting like a human, even when it's very much a tool that's acting on behalf of other people, uh, many of which may not have the best interests of the rest of us in mind.
0: And so in one way, it might be irresponsible to think of it as artificial intelligence or to have that be the face of this paradigm, right? Absolutely. If we think of it as intelligence, it contributes to this anthropomorphizing of a thing that we in many instances ought not trust at all or give authority right so it can't necessarily be undone that's how we view it but even if we weren't to call it colloquially artificial intelligence the things that these ai developers (laughs) ai developers are creating they would still perform the same function we just wouldn't have the same like associations and biases so when i'm interacting with a thing i wouldn't maybe trust it in the same way i would view it as what it is which is not intelligence right it's this statistical model
1: yeah that's I, the 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 danger of us deceiving ourselves is really really high here and it's something that uh, we could certainly pay more attention to the fact that the terminology is very misleading as you note is is definitely an issue um and yet that's what the term has become right now we could try to be more clinical or technical call it machine learning or those sorts of things but uh, ultimately i think this this question was kind of
0: answered back in you know the 1950s when when the term artificial intelligence was invented and it's funny too because it seems like a lot of the AI developers who are pro AI in a sense, or very optimistic about what is possible with these new developments. They both Support thinking about the technology in that way, But then when they're trying to defend it, I don't know. I think I've just been doing a lot of reading lately of people comparing these new mm-hmm. large language models or generative AI to earlier versions of technologies as like a way to encourage people not to freak out like they've been freaking out. Like I was on Twitter last night because i'm I'm human and I use Twitter. It was Jan Lacoon, the lead meta AI scientist who tweeted, he was comparing AI to Google search or to just like a search engine, right? He, he tweeted, let's see, typing how to synthesize codeine on Google gives you links to articles with detailed answers. Nobody has ever worried about that, but somehow people are now demanding safety guardrails to stop large language models from answering such questions. What do, you, what do you think of this argument? What do you think of this analogy? Like, are they similar?
1: <laughs> yeah, I'm not sure that codeine would be the right example, right? It would be more like Googling, how do I psychologically manipulate someone or something like that? And uh, and uh, recognizing then, of course, that AI uh, has been partly trained to do that already. Um, so if we ask ChatGPT, it'll give you an answer, which will be, you know, in... in plain language, and you'll be able to uh, understand it, probably. But uh, the deeper issue there is that that same kind of language model could be used to manipulate you if, if you use it incorrectly. If you look at Google as Google is a search engine, right? It just returns results to you off the web. If it returns a result to you that somebody trying to psychologically manipulate you and sign you up for a scam or something like that, then it's kind of your own fault for clicking on it, maybe. I don't know. Maybe that would be the analogy he's going for. On the other hand, if you're talking to something that's designed to act like a human being and subtly manipulate you in those ways, I think it's a slightly different question. And one thing I would say about, Jan LeCun has been very much a proponent of AI. He's not that worried about it, but there are lots of AI scientists who are at his same level who are very worried about it. So he he kind of gets into these arguments and... and uh, they're they're not particularly nice arguments maybe would be the way to describe it
0: <laughs> obviously i haven't been following these debates as closely as i'm mm-hmm. sure you have or some of the other tech centric people at the center have but just a brief background Sarah <laughs> John, his stance was yeah telling some other controversial takes on a lot of things related to artificial intelligence but not so much the point is just That recurrent analogy or defense against these large language models, it's like, well, we have this other technology that's come out before that can perform similar tasks, and and yet we weren't worried. And I think somebody even posted in the comments to that tweet and said, "Uh, kids have been using Photoshop to generate false images or manipulated images for over 20 years now. Why are we... (laughs) why are we now concerned about this new tool and i just i i think it's important to highlight the differences between something like dolly and photoshop
1: exactly there there are some real differences here in terms of speed and scale and realism and you would think that over time maybe with some of these technologies that have shown us that uh, we can be so easily manipulated or, or we should be more wary of the images that we see that we'd get better at this but i don't think we have actually (laughs) um i think we've actually become i I can't say whether we've become worse but uh, i don't think we've necessarily improved in terms of our skepticism and ability to defend ourselves mentally and psychologically against the kinds of manipulations and misinformation and disinformation that we're now going to see really scaling up to very large levels it's one thing for these things to be used for entertainment like there you know there was a recent image of the pope wearing a big puffy jacket you know that's amusing you know nothing wrong with that but uh it when you start seeing images of i don't know like saying that there was a meeting between uh, the presidents of two countries that didn't happen or saying hey look at this wonderful picture from the peace treaty that was just signed between Ukraine and Russia isn't it great that they're at peace now and this is the you know an artificial article that goes along with that fake picture. And imagine making a thousand of those and flooding the internet with them. That would be a really big piece of misinformation and who knows whether people would be able to figure it out. People would probably be able to figure it out, but the very fact that you can get a, a thousand of these things generated within a few minutes probably. Of course, we're trying to tweak each of them to look like they're real and, and who knows, maybe you can make a fake, you know all the big websites, you can think of a fake New York Times website completely populated with maybe mostly real articles, but with fake ones sprinkled into it and come up with fake websites for all the you know major news sources, all of a sudden you're creating parallel realities that people are just not uh, prepared to deal with.
0: When I was working at the center, I studied misinformation and social media And those were all of the same kinds of conversations, the scale at which misinformation and disinformation spread on Facebook or other social media platforms was what made the threat so large. And now it's even larger. And so really, it seems scale is probably the most relevant difference between something like social media and a large language model or a generative tool like this.
1: Yeah, scale and speed are really the the two big ones. Because, you know, what, what's the expression? A lie gets halfway around the world before the truth gets its shoes on. I mean, this is what we're looking at, right? This is is going to be lies moving really fast at very large scale. And we have to figure out how we're going to trust anything. And ultimately, social trust will be eroded. People will decide, oh, I can really believe this one website. It's always telling me the truth. Or I can really believe this one politician. They're always telling me the truth. And determining truth by loyalty is not a good way to determine truth. That's not a good way at all. <laughs> we, we really need to be coming to these kind of collective notions of truth where we are all cooperating together, where we are testing these things. Are they actually happening? Do we have a person there who's an eyewitness? Can we trust the video? Can we trust the pictures? Can we trust their testimony? And if it's something more scientific, can we actually you know run an experiment as opposed to you know just taking somebody's word for it? So I think uh, there, there are a lot of difficulties there.
0: Right. And the seeds for all of this have been planted because this is the same, these are the same kinds of problems that we're dealing with now with some of these other major tech platforms, companies. They've encouraged us or created an infrastructure for people to receive, whether it's news or any kind of information that is making claims about truth and fact and things that happened, created the, this infrastructure for having to establish. I want to say like habits or patterns. Yep. But I'm only gonna watch, I'm only gonna follow these particular people. Maybe it could be because I trust them or because I'm fond of their rhetoric. I think they're funny. I think the flood of information, just like the amount of choices that one has when wanting to learn about AI or wanting to learn about a presidential election or want to discover facts. There's so, so many different routes that you can go. Yeah,
1: you're exactly right. It all comes down to, to selection, right? It's like we have, we have a very vast world in front of us full of so many things that we can't possibly look at them all. We have to select it down to something that'll fit inside our, our eyes and our ears, right? Um, and so there's no way to get an unbiased perspective on reality. All we can do is hopefully have a, a less biased, hopefully something that's more accurately reflecting the truth. But then everybody in the world is going to have a slightly different assumption of what that means as their presuppositions. And you're right, the, the tech companies have largely exploited this sort of thing to put us inside filter bubbles so that we see things that reinforce what we already believe. So that we'll stay on their platforms or we will become more outraged in order to continue our engagement and keep our eyeballs on their website looking at advertising. And this sort of business model is really just ripping society apart. And I don't think we have fully recognized how bad that is, but uh, AI is going to make it even more obvious.
0: (laughs) Yeah, and faster and at a larger scale. (laughs) Exactly. On the the point of eroding social trust or the complete erosion of trust that we have in institutions, I wanted to go back to what you and I discussed earlier about the societal informed consent and how there are these companies who are deploying these technologies at scale without really informing consumers or society of the risks. And there's no real system for that. And so there there is this concept called societal informed consent. I don't know if it was Carl Mitchum's concept or if it originated somewhere else.
1: So Carl Mitchum gives credit to a couple of professors who wrote a, a, an engineering ethics book, Martin and Schinziger. I'm blanking on their first names right now, but Martin and Schinziger's Introduction to Engineering has a good discussion of social experimentation and societal informed consent. And I guess what I would describe right now is that we've been having technologies, you know, and technology developers and companies put products out onto us for decades, you know, centuries even, you know, nobody, nobody asked permission for the industrial revolution, right? It was just something that happened. But we're at the point now where we've kind of had a presumption of innocence about technology, which is that, you know, technology is innocent until proven guilty, and if it's innocent, that means that anybody can make it and anybody can put it out there and it'll be fine. We're not that worried about it. And then if something goes wrong, then we'll say, oh, this this technology is guilty of some sort of bad thing and we'll try to fix it. We'll make regulations about it or whatever we need to do. We'll sue the companies if they've done something wrong. So this presumption of innocence, I think, is not something that we can necessarily ascribe to technologies at this point. The question is with AI, for example, chat GPT is very entertaining, right? Everybody's, you know, done various fun things with it. But then you ask questions like, well, what do we do when it starts spreading misinformation about people? Like the example that we talked about in that meeting earlier, where it uh, said somebody had been guilty of sexual harassment when they hadn't actually done that at all. It was just completely made up. And I don't know if that's a reason to necessarily hold the entire technology guilty and have it prove it's innocent first. So in other words, make the presumption of guilt and then say it has to prove itself innocent. But it does raise a question of the fact that we are being experimented on as a society and it becomes a lot clearer right if if all the experiments always go well and everybody likes it then there's no question about the experiment maybe maybe societal informed consent is not something that even crosses people's mind but when the experiments are dangerous and people start getting harmed by them and they start turning into lawsuits and it's not just a few people who are affected it's the entire world globally at scale then maybe the presumption of innocence goes away and we start recognizing we are being experimented on And maybe somebody should have asked us if we wanted to be part of this experiment that's ultimately what societal informed consent is about now how you actually go about doing that is a really difficult question because not everybody in society is going to be equipped to to look at these questions and say you know what i don't i don't know anything about computer science i don't know anything about ethics how am i supposed to answer this question we need to have some experts uh people who have knowledge expertise in both the Technical and the ethical and the political and the social sides and legal and all, you know, very, very broad, uh, you know, set of people that we need to have involved here. They need to have a conversation and sit down with each other and say, is this actually a good idea? Now, one of the interesting things about OpenAI is that they actually did this back before the pandemic um, in 2018 or 2019 when GPT 2 came out. They said, GPT-2, this is, we're starting to see this is a very powerful technology here. And maybe we need to have a conversation about what the best way is to put this technology out into society. And uh, they started having that conversation through the Partnership on AI. And I was there at one of the meetings that they had. And, uh, you know, the negatives were already very clear. The, the downsides were already very obvious. And the upsides were also obvious, too. They took some some precautions to try to protect their model to try to make sure that it didn't get out into the wild and uh, started being exploited by bad actors and things like that. But for some reason, when we got around to chat GPT and uh, and GPT-4, all of a sudden, those precautions have been, they don't seem to be so important anymore. And I can't help but wonder if, you know, $10 billion from Microsoft was being dangled in front of them and all of a sudden, the risks didn't seem so bad compared to the the opportunity for them to make some money. This is, you know, this is once again a factor of the way that our society is set up in terms of economics and uh, in terms of the legal system. And once again, the presumption of innocence about these technologies. But when we have the entire educational system now in chaos, trying to figure out how to respond to this, I think we might need to back up and say the educational system did not consent to have... Every student empowered with cheating on every written assignment, we need to back up and say, we did not consent to this. And uh, you need to uh, think a little harder to figure out how to make sure that this works out properly in the first place, rather than subjecting us to this giant experiment where it'll have long-term damaging effects on all of society.
0: Right. We have these professionals in our society, in various fields and industries, and we, because they are experts, we afford them a certain authority, right? We trust their judgment about things. What I like about Carl Mitchum's paper that talks about societal informed consent is the parallel he draws between engineering as a whole to medicine or to the legal system and attorneys. And he asks what service ideal engineering is aimed at, because it's clear in these other fields in medicine, it's aimed at promoting health. And in the legal system or in law, it's a promoting justice. And for engineering, it, what is it? Is it speed and scale <laughs> and efficiency? <laughs> like you said, the way our society is structured allows for these experts who have authority to create products and be aware of their shortcomings, the limitations. And then, because that service ideal isn't clear, when $10 million is dangled in front of their face by Microsoft, there's no codified ideal. So I guess it doesn't matter.
1: Yeah. And it's 10 billion with a B. (laughs) Yeah.
0: 10 billion. Sorry. Yes, I misspoke.
1: (laughs) (laughs) And and yeah, it's a lot of money, right? <laughs> Suddenly, ethics is not so important. Um, and I mean, one of the things I'll say is is uh, this paper by Carl Mitchum, it's called The Philosophical Inadequacy of Engineering. And he he very much says exactly what you just said, right? Medicine knows what they're aiming for. They're aiming for human health. And the legal system is aiming for justice. And it, it sets up, you know, an, kind of an adversarial system. And sometimes, you know, we can say justice was not served in that case. So they're, they're, just because they have an ideal doesn't mean you already always meet it, right? And then he suggests that uh, engineering doesn't have this. And why why is that? Engineering codes of ethics very often say the purpose of engineering is to promote the safety, health, and welfare of the public. And the public is construed as the entire public of the entire world. So the safety, health, and welfare is built into almost every engineering code of ethics. But then there's nothing in engineering ethics education that actually tells engineers what that is. What does it mean to be pursuing the safety, health, and welfare of the public? And he makes one other comparison in there too, which is that the entire field of engineering started off as a military thing where their job was to follow orders. The engineers followed the orders of their commanders and this structure got substituted straight into the tech industry as the business people tell you what to do and you obey them. And and the safety, health and welfare of the public doesn't come up at any point in here. And so the question is, can we build a better professional identity for engineers so that they know something about The safety, health and welfare of the public so they can actually be committed to that and try to promote it and also empower them in the way that doctors are empowered, because there are hospital administrators who would like to tell doctors to cut corners, spend less time with patients, all those sorts of things. And they say, no, I've taken an oath, whether it's the Hippocratic oath or various other sorts of oaths that they take as medical professionals as part of the American Medical Association, because they're held to these ethical standards by a a body that can ultimately strip them of their title if they do something wrong. And so when a doctor stands up to a hospital administrator or a lawyer stands up to somebody who's trying to make them do something unethical, they say, no, I'll lose my job. I literally can't do that because the American Medical Association or the legal association that they're a member of uh, will throw them out. And in some countries, there are engineering associations that have that sorts of power. But in the United States, we don't have that kind of association that uh, has that power over engineers. And that's another kind of facet to this question. Uh, Maybe if they were more empowered, they would be able to uh, be more protective and more cautious with the sorts of technologies that they're created.
0: And do you think that's a product of the way our economy is structured in the United States or our priorities because we want to support the total autonomy of the market? And
1: It's free. It's more free, right? I mean, ultimately, if engineers can do whatever they want to, then you're more likely to get more products faster. On the other hand, if they have to be worried about getting thrown out of their engineering society and not being able to practice engineering anymore, then that will slow them down. Once again, it gets to the question of the presumption of innocence of technology or the presumption of guilt of technology and how much risk we're willing to tolerate as a society. If we are more risk tolerant, then we will take more risks. And if we are more risk averse, then we will not take as many risks. And we can see this kind of comparison between, for example, the United States and Europe. Europe tends to be more risk averse in terms of approaching new technology. Whereas in the United States, we tend to be very risk tolerant, you know, people can do all sorts of things. And as these more and more powerful technologies come out, we're going to have to start evaluating whether we actually have made the right choices up to now, maybe we need to be less risk tolerant. But we'll see, right?
0: Yeah, we'll see. I mean, it's burnt into our culture, this fascination with technology and high technology and what's shiny and new (laughs) and so i mean on one level it's completely cultural you just have a a swap of people who aren't concerned in the slightest when something new like chat gpt comes out or if they are concerned they're aware of those concerns but it's it's a superficial concern it's more just like oh this is And they treat it like an experiment, too, in that way, because (laughs) I don't know, we're all just very removed from the reality of things on on a lot of levels. But I have a final question or return to an earlier question about informed consent. Would it be possible for a company like OpenAI to provide all of the relevant information to persons so that they could rationally decide whether or not they want to participate?
1: Yep. So this is this is a great question. And this gets to some ideas about controlled release of technology, right? They they could say, um, and, and we saw this already with Bing Chat, you know, a limited number of people gained access to it. And those are the people who are very excited in testing it, right? And they and so they discovered that it thinks it has an alternate name, multiple alternate names in there, and that, you know, you can get it to say all sorts of crazy stuff. And then Microsoft said, Oh, so I think we need to tone down, you know, <laughs> we'll put some limits around what it's allowed to say and it won't try to manipulate users into marrying it and that sorts of stuff. And they did that. You know, it took a few weeks and it was uh, highly amusing from the outside as well as kind of disturbing to watch. But theoretically, it's safer now. And I think that opening, I thought that they did that by putting Chat GPT through this human feedback loop where they said, you know, thumbs up or thumbs down on the technology, right? This is a good answer. This is a bad answer, give good answers, don't give bad answers. And, you know, all the thousands of hours of work or who knows how many, how much, maybe it was millions of hours. We don't even know how much work went into it. But that kind of thing, when, when you think about how you can actually get consent, you're absolutely right. It's not something that you can do very easily. What you can do is maybe do a more controlled version of the experiment, right? Ultimately say, Hey, we need a thousand testers. And yes, it's going to be potentially weird, but it's not going to break the educational system. It's not going to ruin the college admissions process. That was something that happened. You know, ChatGPT was released, I believe, on November 30th, if I remember correctly, don't quote me on that. But that's right when college admissions essays are due, if you're applying for college and you're like, hey, I don't feel good about writing my college essay, so I'm just going to have ChatGPT write it, send it off to your universities, and who knows, maybe you get into a better university than you should have gotten into. And people were not happy about that. Just like people who are already in in university or high school said, "Look, it's finals. You know, it's finals week right now. And look what you just did to us. That is not a controlled release. That is a large scale societal experiment at the global level because it's not just in English speaking world. Um, it's in French and Spanish and Chinese and Russian and you know whatever other languages." ChatGPT can speak. I asked it once and it said, oh, I can do 11 languages. I don't know whether it was true or false, you know, because it tells lies also. So once again, huge, huge experiment could have been done better.
0: You've been listening to Wild Beasts, a podcast from the Markle Center for Applied Ethics at Santa Clara University. Thanks for tuning in and check out our website for more episodes about ethics.